You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we converse in the studio with Hal Blacker, founder of Real Dharma, an organization dedicated to helping people find inner freedom through directly recognizing their true nature. Hal has been authorized to teach non-dual wisdom and meditation in both the Advaita Vedanta and Nyingma Dzogchen uh, traditions. We'll get started with, with that, that show after a musical break. Musical interludes on the show are from a CD called Luigi Boccherini, th- Luigi Boccherini Three Quintets, performed by the ensemble Quattro Mosaic with Patrick Cohen on pianoforte. This is the second movement from the Gerard Catalog Quintet number 415, marked Minuetto con Presto con Grazia. There we This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Tayu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. Great to be here. I also want to mention, Stuart, that I don't have any more signal on my headphone. This week on the show... We converse in the studio with Hal Blacker, founder of Real Dharma, an organization dedicated to helping people find inner freedom through directly recognizing their true nature. Hal teaches non-dual wisdom and meditation and has until recently led a meditation and study group in Marin County, California. 
How believes that direct liberating knowledge of one's true nature is available to everyone without the need for dogma, priests, authoritarian structures, ritual, or elaborate practice. This kind of liberating knowledge is not the end, but is a new beginning for most of us, the beginning of a life lived without the bondage of fear and unnecessary sorrow. Hal has been authorized to teach in the traditions of Advaita Vedanta, Tibetan Buddhist Nyingma Dzogchen, and recently he has, primar- he, is, he has primarily focused on teaching traditional Advaita Vedanta, which he has studied under Dr. Carol Radha Whitfield and her guru, the late Swami Dayananda Saraswati. He also ha- was initiated and studied Advaita Vedanta under Sri Ranjit Maharaj, a master in the lineage of Sri uh, Sita Rameshwara and Nisargadatta Maharaj. Hal studied Nyingma Dzogchen primarily under Anam Tupton and was authorized as a holder of that lineage in 2010. He began his studies of Buddhism under the venerable Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche in the early 1970s, and you can reach him at hal at realdharma.org. Hal Blacker, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you, Stuart. It's great to be here. And Rob, it's been uh, about 10 years, yeah, I think. Yeah, we were trying to figure years. out... Uh, Just yeah, how long it's been since we've had you on the show. I think we had yeah. you on early on, uh, uh, back in the first year of the show. So it's uh, we've obviously... Uh, Seen you off and on uh, uh, since then, but but, uh, uh, but we'd like to have you uh, update our um, listeners. Okay, great. On what uh, what you've been up to in the last whatever it's been, eight to ten years. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, and it's really good to be here with you guys. Um, we've known each other for a long time. Yeah. There's been some hiatuses of some years in between seeing each other, but I feel like uh, we have a deep connection that goes way back, and we've been on a similar journey for for many years, so mm-hmm. it's really great to be here with you. Thank you. Well, so uh, tell us what you've been up to. Well, right now, actually, I'm on a kind of a, a break from teaching, mm-hmm. which is interesting, and I've done that before. Uh, I think my first teacher, uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, he used to take about a year retreat every few years mm-hmm. to refresh himself, and um, so I'm doing that, too. I'm not sure how long... It's going to be, I'm going to play it by ear. But uh, originally, I primarily was teaching or focused on teaching Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And And that was was, uh, uh, Tibetan uh, Vajrayana? Tibetan, actually not as much Vajrayana, although it's from the, I'm in a Vajrayana lineage, but Mm -hmm. focused primarily on on the non-dual aspects of uh, Dzogchen and Mahamudra. Okay. So... You know, in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, Tibetan Buddhism kind of includes everything, and it has uh, what they call the Sutrayana, which are the more basic Buddhist teachings mm-hmm. that are pretty much in common with most Buddhists. Mm-hmm. The Mahayana uh, Bodhisattva path of altruism and and the teachings of emptiness and compassion, and then there's the Vajrayana, which is kind of a very technical uh, and somewhat secret path. Then there's the I, I would like to hear a little bit more about that as you go on, but, okay. but, but, but finish your overview. And then there's um, the, finally, there's really the most, I think, non-dual aspects of it are the Dzogchen and Mahamudra teachings, which there are some differences between those two, but they're quite similar. My teacher, when he asked me to teach, really at that time wanted me to primarily be involved in, I think, teaching the kind of Mahamudra Dzogchen style of teaching without necessarily being too technical about it. He wanted me to try to help people recognize their true nature 
as, you could say, pure consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I uh, tried to do. And I was teaching things like um, some of the dohas or songs of inspiration of Milharepa, mm-hmm. which talk about Mahamudra, uh, Flight of the Garuda, which is a famous teaching on Dzogchen. So, so, and from what I recall, some of the um, uh, authorization involved uh, something called the pointing out, or the. Uh, uh, I'm just curious what that uh, uh, terminology refers to. Yeah, well, he asked. That's he. Uh, I was very honored actually that he asked me to do that. He asked me to, and also other teachers that he did um, ordain as teachers. But he asked us, in particular, at the time that I was ordained. Uh, with two other people, he asked us to point out the nature of mind or the nature of consciousness to people. So that's kind of unusual. Usually, I think, in uh, Buddhism, um, in Tibetan Buddhism, primarily high lamas and people like that engage in what's called the pointing out. Mm. There's no necessarily uh, rule about that, but... um, well, can you can you describe what pointing out means so so that our listeners have a, a clue about this distinction from what might be more typical? So pointing out is in some sense the beginning of the Dzogchen and the Mahamudra paths, and what it is is it's a it's a process or a procedure in which a teacher directly points you to the nature of your of your mind as being empty in essence and uh, luminous in nature and having also a spontaneous or natural quality of uh, compassion. So pointing out is basically, it can be done in any number of ways and there's many stories about it being done in a kind of uh, spontaneous and sometimes um, unexpected kind of way. For example, uh, the famous uh, Dzogchen teacher Petrol Rinpoche received the pointing out when his when his teacher started um, uh, basically cursing at him and tweaking his nose. (laughs) So he grabbed him by the nose and dragged him around by the nose a little bit, and in great pain, suddenly he recognized his true nature. So it can be a little bit like a Zen sort of thing. So, uh, so is this like a crazy, crazy wisdom kind of uh, that, that you thing? Could, that might have been an example of that. But of course, it need not be done in that way. Pointing out can be just done through um, through explanation, really, mm-hmm. and uh, of the nature of one's uh, mind. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, is is that is it something that's a, a dynamic practice where you know in the course of just interaction that um, one might use whatever occasion arises as an occasion to show the emptiness of uh, uh, what one might take to be a very important uh, mental construct. It could could work that way. Um, You know, again, another very famous case was when um, Tilopa slapped Naropa, his disciple, across the face with his sandal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so sometimes it can be done in a dramatic way like but, that. But, I, but I'll say that these days, generally speaking, it's often done in a bit more of a formal uh, and a little bit ritualized situation. For example, one may be told, now we're going to be 
giving the pointing out instruction. So is it, is it, I mean, for instance, koan practice has a formality to it and yet a kind of a spontaneity and openness and uncertainty and uh, for students maybe a terror uh, because there's a kind of a, a some, somewhat of a confrontative situation, partly for the formality, and then what is thrown at one is a paradox that, f- from my understanding and experience, the mind is not well suited to extract oneself from. And so one has to call upon other resources outside of the workings of the ordinary mind. So sometimes it does it does happen like that, but... There's no uh, hard and fast rule. For example, my teacher, Anam Tupton, uh, my main uh, Buddhist teacher, uh, usually when he would give pointing out instructions, it would be done often in a very gentle way Mm -hmm. to a group of people. And um, not much would happen. (laughs) You could either, you might get it, you might not get it. It depends on your readiness and your connection. Um, but but to be so it may not be a dramatic situation yeah. where someone you know sometimes someone might shout, uh, uh, clap their hands suddenly and shock shock the mind. That's one way that it can sometimes be done. But it also can be done just through a very simple tacit pointing to just this you know just this moment right here, and it can be done at any time and in almost any way because what is being pointed to in some ways is extraordinarily ordinary. It is the very nature of this very moment of the consciousness and awareness that is in every moment that usually goes unnoticed because Mm -hmm. we are so involved with the content of the mind that we don't recognize the, um, the field or the gestalt, so to speak, of consciousness itself, which is like the sea, from which the waves of the contents of the mind arise. Mm-hmm. So it can be done at any time in, in almost any way. So, so to be ordained uh, and asked to provide that kind of teaching uh, is an acknowledgement of one having some level of familiarity or facility in discerning or distinguishing between, as you put it, the 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 backdrop or the the reality of mind that is uh, ever-present versus the content of mind, which is where, in our ordinary conscious states, we tend to focus our attention. One would hope so. <laughs> well, yeah, well, one, yeah, one yeah. would hope so. But I mean, yeah. that's that's ultimately what that what what that would mean. I mean, I guess I guess that what I'm trying to get around to is you know how. Uh, when I look at different spiritual traditions and I look at like my own work with my teacher, there are things that definitely fit into what I would call, from your description, pointing out. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they were very gentle things and sometimes they were very intense moments of pressure where when something relaxed in me, then suddenly there was this here, there, that. Exactly. And, I, you know, I realized when I received the first kind of formal pointing out instruction, which was from my first Buddhist teacher, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. It was in a very formal situation. There was, you know, there was a lot of buildup to it, and uh, it was in a large group of people. Yet I found it extremely, uh, very powerful. But at the time when that happened, I realized, oh, you know, this is what Trungpa Rinpoche had been doing with me every time I met him practically, Mm -hmm. but I had not recognized it until it was pointed out. That's the interesting thing, Mm -hmm. because it's like pointing out something that's always present and is always there. 
in a certain way, Trungpa Rinpoche was always, because he was in a certain way, seemed to be much of the time in that kind of awareness, then just being in his presence, it was being communicated to some degree, but it wasn't until it was specifically clearly pointed out that then I recognized, oh, that's what had been happening from the moment that I met him. You know? no, no. Thank you. Well, I, I appreciate that because I, I've heard that term a few times and I wanted to get just a little uh, deeper on, on what that means in the tradition. So people often make a very big deal out of it, and it is in a certain way a big deal if it does take, if one actually sees it, because that doesn't always happen with everybody. But if one actually recognizes it and sees it, it is a turning point. Yet on a certain level, and this is why I think, uh, you know, with, which you read in my introduction, that this is the beginning, in yeah. a sense, to recognize one's nature. This is, again, the beginning of the path for in uh, Dzogchen and Mahamudra. Would it, would it be a, a kind of analogous to the descriptions of Satori and Zen, where there's a an awakening moment, but it's not like you have the awakening moment and suddenly like a super saturated crystal or solution, you crystallize out into this dramatically different being. It's more like multiple moments like that add up to, uh, over time, develop a kind of presence that's different than presence from the uh, ordinary mind. It could be like that. Uh, it could be more or less dramatic. The thing about it is that if it actually, if it if it's clearly recognized what we're talking about, pointing out, which is the nature of oneself as pure awareness, then um, you now basically have a taste, at least, of the fruition of the of the fruition, the fruition in this case of the of the path, which is to fully recognize that that's who I am and that's who everybody is, uh, is all, becomes both the ground, <laughs> the ba the basis from mm. which you're starting, and the path upon which you tread. So there's a unity of the ground path and fruition in this kind of non-dual uh, teaching. Got it. Um, and so I'm interested in how then that relates to the Advaita Vedanta because, and I mean, I, 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 partly I'm interested from a personal level, you know, since you started out in practice in the Tibetan tradition and worked in the non-dual aspects of the Tibetan tradition, what was the interest and draw for the uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj lineage and the and that that kind of very mm pure contemporary Indian Advaita Vedanta. Oh, yeah, okay. I, I'd like to address it. Let me just say the one more thing about sure. just pointing out, just to, con just to conclude for now, although we might come back to it, is that um, generally it's looked upon that when one gets a certain kind of clarity as to one's true nature, then the, the, what, what has to happen from there on is to become absolutely doubtless about it, that mm -hmm. that's all that there really is that that is what reality is and then um to um to then uh really stabilize it and learn to live in that live that way with confidence but of course for most of us we may have a uh, um even if we have a very profound and clear uh recognition we still may have lots of emotional issues and things like that that we still have to work work with, work through, deal with. It doesn't necessarily mean that one is any different than anybody else. So, you know, some people make a very big deal out of these kinds of things, but my experience 
we're all in the same boat, basically. So the spiritual, <clears throat> excuse me, the spiritual bypass, you know, that um, has been pointed to by many mm. uh, over the over recent decades is is um, uh, as I understand it, what you're what you're essentially um, identifying here, and 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 I'm wondering if you think that this is something that is particularly that, that Western spiritual practitioners these days, and by these days I mean in the last decades, um, because all three of us sitting at this table here have some decades of of practice experience, and we know others who as well. Um, a similar situation. I'm wondering if you think that, that that was different for folks in, for example, traditional Tibetan culture, or India, or Japan, or where, or China, or you know, China uh, of, of uh, long ago. Um, I'm wondering if 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 spiritual bypass is something that you would point to as an ever-present. Um, Difficulty, or is it something that is that we in the West are particularly prone to, given our cultural context? Uh, there is talk about it in the in the Eastern tradition as well, so I don't mm -hmm. think it was unknown to them whether it's more prevalent for us or not. I'm not exactly sure. Mm -hmm. It definitely is a form of uh, it is a, there is a kind of a, a possible tendency to to do that. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the good things I think about working with a teacher and working with a sangha uh, mm -hmm. or with a group of of other practitioners is that um, one tends to get sometimes rubbed rubbed up in such a way that uh, that um, challenges arise and you get to see them so mm -hmm. that you realize that uh, even if you're able to in some ways tune into a profound sense of peace and clarity. And, and even and happiness that's intrinsic to our nature that still in conducting one's uh, one's life daily life there's there's usually almost continual challenges of one sort or another mm -hmm. to deal with until maybe very very far along on the path if ever well but, but and the point I'm, I'm of course yeah. stressing is that, is that um, it's easy to fool oneself. Yeah, definitely. Basically. Yeah, and that's and that's kind of the that's kind of the tricky part. And I think you know, to be honest with you, that uh, um, that does often happen. So I remember hearing a, a, a famous spiritual teacher tell the story that after his he was a Zen practitioner after his he had a very powerful satori, and his teacher then explained to him all the mistakes he was going to make over the next 10 years. And he was sure that there was no way he could make those mistakes because he was so clear now mm -hmm. and so open. And then he proceeded to make every one of those mistakes, he said in his words. Mm -hmm. I think in some ways uh, I had some taste of that myself. So when I felt that some kind of clarity arose and I felt a tremendous sense of finally, you know, some kind of coming home, to myself and some clarity and peace and profound happiness that I felt, I think, for a while that uh, most of my issues were done. And over the years, probably since I've spoken to you last, I came to realize personally that I still had many things to many challenges. And mm -hmm. it's a wonderful that I have a teacher also like uh, Anam Tupton, who is 
quite uh, self-disclosing about even his own challenges. As far advanced as I believe he is, as a wonderful human being and a great bodhisattva, yet he still talks about the challenges he still has. So mm-hmm. that helps keep you on so, track. So I'm, I'm interested in, um, without going you know, into a lot of uh, unnecessary personal detail, but mm. just to... To clarify that, I think it's useful for people listening to uh, get a sense of what, even when one has had even profound awakening experiences, what is it that, why is it that challenges continue? I mean, because there is certainly the the kind of folk spirituality has the idea that when you have this enlightening ex- uh, enlightenment experience that uh, everything is uh, sort of taken care of, and and you use the modality or the description of how how we have you can have a, a a profound opening, but then the work is to stabilize that. Right. And and uh, maybe you could describe that a little bit more uh, for listeners, just to help clarify this issue that you know both to understand in our own practice when we have these profound experiences that uh, that doesn't mean that uh, it's permanent. And also, I think the other the corollary is that uh, even very advanced teachers aren't necessarily done with their work. Right. So, you know, one thing is I do want to make some distinction between even having a very powerful experience and the kind of recognition that I've been talking about. Uh, Sometimes it's not easy to distinguish between those, but I think often people do have very powerful and very inspiring experiences that are temporary experiences, you know. And then when they leave, they're basically pretty much the same. When the experience is over, they're pretty much left back the same that they were before the experience, except that they now they are, their mind is more open, they have some inspiration, they have some maybe some guide guiding light, you know, before them of something to be working towards. There's another kind of a thing that can happen, which is really a profound recognition that often is not even as dramatic or explosive sometimes, um, but that is a tacit kind of understanding of who you are, which really in a certain way doesn't come and go. In a way, it's always available to you once you've recognized it, just like, you know, recognizing your own face in the mirror. You're not necessarily looking at your face all the time, but anytime you want to, you can look in the mirror and you see your face uh, and you know that's you. And in a similar way, there is that kind of recognition that can occur. That's uh, and that is a very that's a very powerful thing that can happen. But even with that, it doesn't mean that one's work is necessarily over. That's the amazing <laughs> the amazing what would it thing. even mean yeah. to say that? Yeah, I mean, that, that really work mean is over. That. Yeah, <laughs> that, that work is over. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm asking that um, quite innocently. I'd like to know, you know, if you have a because because I'm, um, I'm I'm trying to imagine what that would be. I used to I used to of course have this idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, enlightenment, whatever that means, or some other, mm-hmm. you know, analogous term. Um, Oh, that's the descriptor for this state of nothing, no, no more work to do. But what would what would that even mean? Why even be in a body if if mm. if your work um, is over? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Um, I I can't tell you from my own experience, so I, mm. I don't know how to answer that. The thing is, though, that. Um, 
On the other hand, mm-hmm. I do think that over time, uh, particularly after this kind of recognition and working with it, um, that um, certain obstacles do at least diminish, mm-hmm. if not completely go away. Sure. And uh, there's a Swami that I, uh, from India, in the, from the Advaita Vedanta tradition, he talks about um, basically one sign is that the... Uh, your the the uh, what does he call it something like the um the frequency of your freakouts <laughs> the length less decrease the length of time that they last uh-huh. whereas sometimes a bad situation could be days or weeks of agony now mm-hmm. it might only be an hour or two of disturbance, the mm-hmm. frequency that that occurs, the intensity with which it occurs, the length of time for which it occurs, the recovery time right. lessens as well. And I think that that does gradually happen. But um, All of that is measurable. It is measurable. Yeah. It's measurable, and I think it's a real thing. Yeah. Otherwise, what are we doing here, really? You know, I but, mean, but but still, yeah. it's it's like an asymptotic curve. You're approaching, you're approaching, you're approaching, <laughs> but you're never getting to the well, end. <laughs> I mean, I, I that's why uh, um, our friend Ken McLeod likes to use the analogy of the closest analog to spiritual practice is art. Uh, artists aren't done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they. Uh, continue to uh, I mean certainly some artists get into ruts and things like that and other artists continue to try to uh, reinvent themselves in certain ways and go deeper in whatever form they have and would you say that that analogy is uh, uh, valid for you know deepening you you the, the things you're talking about uh, that change that are, are that are obvious are definitely measurable attributes that one could reasonably expect someone who's integrated a uh, enlightening experience into their life would demonstrate but there's probably levels of things that from their perspective still constitute uh stuff that they are working on that to a lay person they may not even be discern why or what or uh that that's even an issue to worry about yeah, that could be. And then there's also another another way of looking at it, which just to throw a monkey wrench in, so to speak, which is it might get to the point where there's a kind of a love and acceptance of oneself, warts and all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that even though one has still imperfections, because every no one is perfect, right? So it may be that those imperfections become, in a certain way, like ornaments that you can wear, rather than being a source of tremendous suffering for yourself and others. Then to Rob's point, uh, if uh, one attained to that uh, perfect equilibrium of self-acceptance, <laughs> is there anything to do? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I mean, there's always life, right? I mean, life still goes on and continues, so uh, yeah. the universe is bigger than than any of us. Exactly. And we're not separate from it. So in in that sense uh uh it's even hard to I mean even even the uh if I start to think about the definitions of being done it starts to cease to mean anything. Uh it's like saying is the universe ever done. Right. Right, right. Yeah, you know in the in the uh traditions of both uh Buddhism and Advaita Vedanta of course, they have a certain kind of cosmology that at a certain point you no longer need to take any further birth 
in Mahayana Buddhism, you may t- choose to take further births to help other beings, but you're basically done in that sense, right? But mm-hmm. we don't necessarily have to accept that cosmology, and I like to talk about these things, with, uh, to be honest, even though I'm very grounded in those traditions that are, that really are based in those cosmologies to a great extent, uh, but as a Westerner, I like to talk about these things without necessarily referring to those cosmologies. So from that point of view, I don't know what it is to be done except to maybe to be able to dance with the universe in a way that doesn't cause yourself or others any undue suffering and which expresses freedom. Yeah. So going back to, you know, the... A uh, question I asked, uh, you know, just more on the personal side. Again, I'm mm-hmm. I'm interested in slipping into the Advaita Vedanta, okay. just in contrast to the Tibetan tradition, and to get a sense of where uh, um, how how you made that uh, how you made that particular journey. Yeah, it's kind of strange. You know, my own case is um, I'm a uh, I'm kind of like a little bit poly-religious. I don't necessarily uh, recommend that to other people. I tend to think that for most people, sticking with one thing and going deep is usually better than spreading uh, yourself thin among different traditions. But I'll have to say I was... um, I was really exclusively uh, Tibetan Buddhist for about 20 years. Uh, after my teacher died, I did some other things. I got exposed to a sort of a Western a neo-Advaita type of a um, tradition, which uh, eventually I left. And then I met a, uh, just so happened, I met a more traditional Advaita Vedanta teacher who lived in India. Then he died after about three years. And um, there was a period of time when I felt I wasn't really making progress. I was a little bit stuck. I wasn't really satisfied. My teacher, who I had met in India, Sri Ranjit Maharaj, who is from the same lineage as the very famous uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj, who wrote the very popular book, I Am That. He was of that same lineage. They had the same teacher. Wonderful teacher, but I feel I didn't really understand what he was trying to convey to me. I was inspired, but I didn't understand. So I felt kind of stuck, and I felt like I needed to do some practice. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do practice, why not return to try to see if I can find a Tibetan teacher and return to that practice? Um, And um, then I met my Tibetan teacher. But near the same time, I also met my Advaita Vedanta, traditional Advaita Vedanta teacher, uh, Carol Whitfield. And um, so I was kind of on these two tracks at the same time. In many ways, uh, Advaita Vedanta, in a very powerful way, pointed out, (laughs) gave me this sort of pointing out that I had kind of received, but it gave me a clarity uh, about it that I somehow hadn't gotten in Buddhism. Uh, I, even though they, the invited Vedantins don't speak in this way, I feel that primarily the teaching there is a methodology to continually point you to the nature of what they call the self. The nature of oneself is pure consciousness. 
And that's all the teaching is about. And it's just hits on that in many, many different ways. So that in some ways, with a good Advaita Vedanta teacher who's unfolding the teaching from a point, a place of understanding it well herself, um, you're constantly getting a pointing out instruction over and over and over again. And every doubt that you have, uh, you have an opportunity to clarify it through inquiry and questioning. And so for me, that was an extremely uh, powerful uh, process. But in my own, and yet in my own personal experience, I'm always a little bit hesitant. How much do I really want to talk personally about my own experience? You know, usually in the traditions I'm in, we don't do that. But as a Westerner, maybe I can do that. Maybe I should do it. I don't know. But what happened with me was I was in a certain place where I felt like I had been getting some understanding, but I still something was not resolved. I still had doubts. There was some lack of resolution of what I had been seeking, really, for most of my life. And uh, various things happened in my life, uh, including having spent about six months caring for my dying mother that brought things to some extent to a head. I felt like, okay, you know, I really do want to get to the bottom of what is this really all about? What is this zero-sum game, so to speak, called life about? We live and then we're going to die, and what for, really? Even with all my spiritual training and study, there was some part of me that still was not sure is this really a good thing or not? (laughs) And so I was still having some, uh, you know, this fundamental existential um, doubt, angst, whatever you want to call it, that had not been resolved. And um, the interesting thing was that I went to see my teacher uh, when I got back after my mother passed away. I went to see my teacher, Anam Tipton. And met with him privately and for some reason in that meeting with him I just completely relaxed and let go and I was felt like I was in a state of of bliss to the extent that it lasted for several days and I thought that I uh, I thought is this enlightenment what's going on but after three days I woke up and I was completely the same as I had always been so then I was really upset really upset. I felt, wow, you know, I'm so sick of this getting it, losing it, getting it, losing it phenomenon. I think a lot of people who have been serious seekers have had this experience of getting it, thinking they've got it, maybe got it, is this it, and then losing it over and over again. I was so tired of that, (laughs) that I, um, and I began to engage very seriously in a form of uh, inquiry actually suggested to me from the Advaita Vedanta teachings. Hmm. And somehow some sort of breakthrough, I, I guess, occurred. Um, again, I'm, uh, I'm not saying that makes me anything special or anything like that, but some sort of decisive breakthrough occurred that was a turning point in my path. Now, it's interesting because given all those circumstances, was that the blessings of my Tibetan Buddhist teacher? Was that the blessings of the Advaita Vedanta lineage? I don't really know. 
I can't say. The specific uh, methodology that I think helped me the most, seemed to most directly help me, was a kind of inquiry that was suggested by and taught by the Advaita Vedanta teachings. However, I think the whole thing went together, you know, so mm-hmm. that's why I don't know whether I'm Tibetan Buddhist or whether I'm Advaita Vedanta, and I love both of them. And ultimately, to be honest with you, I feel that they are pointing really to the same thing. Got it. Well, um, I still want to know more about, and I'll I'll give you just a little background. We've had a number of uh, Tibetan practitioners, teachers on this show over over the years, and and friends in life as well. And um, I've never... And some sometimes we've had these wonderful conversations where all this great stuff comes out, but I've never really understood um, some of the distinctions that that keep getting raised by these by these practitioners. So maybe leaving the Advaita Vedanta discussion for the for for the next hour. Um, what can you tell me about the difference? What does Vajrayana mean? What what does Tsogchen and Mahamudra mean? I mean, you've already alluded to the to a distinction between those two and and Vajrayana, but I've I've honestly never understood what um, what distinguishes Vajrayana from other forms of Buddhism, for example, and what distinguishes um, the different schools within Vajrayana, as I understand them to exist. Um, and you how a, that? You have a few weeks. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, yeah. obviously, obviously, uh, we we have limited time. Mm-hmm. But I'm but I'm I, I'm not asking for for technical stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm asking for how how someone in the circumstances of of growing up in the West uh, is going to interface with these mm-hmm. traditions from a very different cultural context mm. and how it how it can be made meaningful. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me see if I can try to describe this, talk about it a little bit in a kind of intuitive way. Because uh, you, uh, you, uh, you and listeners here can look it up in the books uh, in terms of, of the course. history and all the different schools and the complexities of it. Uh, and there was a lot of history about it all, but um, really... In Tibetan Buddhism, you know, Tibetan Buddhism contains what's called uh, three major divisions, which are the Sutrayana, Mm -hmm. which are the teachings, again, on uh, basic ethics, renunciation, non-attachment, basic, like, mindfulness type of meditation and and morality and those kinds of teachings as well as the Mahayana teachings of emptiness and so forth. So this this would be basically like if you know as I happen to have done if you go and read the um, the Pali Canon uh, suttas and then maybe in addition to that read some of the uh, Mahayana sutras. That's is that what we're talking about exactly. here? Exactly. So the the Pali Canon would be roughly, you know, the one part of the Sutrayana, mm-hmm. with, and then uh, then the, the Mahayana part of it is when the emphasis becomes rather than so much on taming the mind uh, through renunciation and non-attachment, mm-hmm. but through cultivating particularly compassion 
and the understanding of emptiness mm -hmm. and um, and practicing the six paramitas or certain types of virtues that are uh, an expression of compassion. The um, Vajrayana, you could say, is a part of Mahayana, but it's a very special kind of teaching mm -hmm. that developed in India, uh, more in medieval India, mm -hmm. and then was transmitted to Tibet and um, preserved in Tibet. And you could say it's it's a it's a part of Mahayana, but it's a very special teaching that. Ha incorporates uh, many kinds of secret um, practices. Mm -hmm. They're secret because they can be confusing or misleading to the uninitiated. And also they're not necessarily that useful for people unless they have uh, some kind of a, uh, a, a foundation uh, of basic um, ethics and and mental discipline mm -hmm. with which to practice them. And is it, and am I an Am I correct in understanding that also part of the secret is you ha you really have to have sort of ongoing contact with the teacher to make sure that you don't misinterpret or misunderstand or misapply? Yeah, and Vajrayana is very, uh, it's completely based on your relationship with the guru, right. with the teacher, and you have to be initiated, in, accepted by a teacher, initiated mm -hmm. into a particular type of sadhana or practice. Mm -hmm. uh, usually it involves uh, meditation on a deity, which mm -hmm. is not actually an externally existing god or goddess, but is a kind of an archetype or a representation of some enlightened aspect of your own mind okay. and the practices in many ways what happened is I think that uh, um, Buddhism incorporated many of the practices that they felt could be effective from Hindu pujas pujas and Hindu deity worship and so forth okay. but uh, they understand it in a, in a in maybe a different way because it's a non-theistic religion so all of these deities are meant to only represent they're like archetypes of dimensions of yourself, of your own enlightened uh, nature that you're trying to learn to embody and okay. relate to. So they use, though, these rather esoteric techniques. These are can be challenging for Westerners. It's Visual, very, we're talking about like visualization. Visualization of deities. They, we, you do. There's, but it's also can be very beautiful. There's there's music that goes with it. Uh, often there's the practice of music. Uh, there's art, such as the beautiful Tonka paintings mm -hmm. everyone has seen of these wonderful deities. There's um, the playing of drums and bells. There's mudras, which is like a dance you do with your hands. Mm -hmm. uh, there's gestures. It's, it involves the whole body, mind, and speech in the practice. And uh, it's a very uh, amazing discipline. Mm -hmm. um, I think often though it's not understood. I'm not sure how well it's working in the West. I can't really say for sure. My teacher Anam Tipton is now teaching a select group of people these some of these teachings in detail um, and really taking great pains to explain them what the real meaning of it is in a way that, believe it or not, with all the years that I was involved, I hadn't heard before. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm. 
You could say at the pinnacle of Vajrayana, if I may. Yes, did you go, go at the pinnacle of Vajrayana, then there's another uh, set of teachings, which would we I would say is which is Dzogchen or Mahamudra. Mm -hmm. So these categories, there people would interpret some of these categories a little bit differently. So some people would say Mahamudra and Dzogchen are in fact uh, Vajrayana, part of Vajrayana. There are some teachers who would make a distinction, saying that it's a different. Mm -hmm. A different kind of thing, because in pure Dzogchen and in often in pure Mahamudra, now you drop the ritualistic practices of meditating, visualizing deities, and engaging in that kind of way. Mm -hmm. And now it becomes more, a little bit more Zen-like in the practice, and that you're really just looking directly at the pure, formless nature of awareness itself. Mm -hmm. And... Um, my own feeling is that for Westerners, uh, it's easier for Westerners to relate to some degree to the Sutrayana teachings of mindfulness, awareness, m ethics, and morality. Mm -hmm. And then also, it's somewhat easier for them to relate to the and to relate to the emptiness teachings, which we would call Prajnaparamita. Mm -hmm. That can be a little complicated or intellectual, but there are ways to relate to it more directly and intuitively, the understanding of emptiness. And then to possibly relate to Dzogchen and Mahamudra without the complicated deity practices of, uh, of Vajrayana. But, you know, there's different... Different things for different people uh, work. Uh, one thing that's beautiful in Vajrayana is the uh, is there's a devotionalism mm -hmm. that is sometimes seems to be missing in some of the other. Yeah, I, I think I'm teachings. I'm interested in the, the, that sense of do you feel like uh, because Westerners and because of our kind of materialistic orientation and scientific orientation, we would gravitate more naturally to these sort of empty pra emptiness mm -hmm. practices mm -hmm. uh, or uh, pure mind practices. Mm. Do you think that there's something that's missing or left left on the table uh, by not engaging in the deity practices, for instance, or the visualization practices, because they do something that's distinct that might actually get to the heart of uh, the awakening of compassion that's different than what uh, a pure mind, uh, you know, uh, clear space, clear sky kind of meditation gets you. Maybe. You know, I'm not sure about that. And one thing I have to say is I don't feel I have expertise in Vajrayana. And so, and I was not authorized to teach Vajrayana per se. Mm. So that, I don't feel I'm, I'm really qualified to talk mm. too much about Vajrayana. Okay. But... Um, you know, I did. I went to a uh, monastic college. Uh, just visited a wonderful place in Sirta, in uh, named Larangara in the Golok, Tibet. That many people from the lineage I'm involved in uh, studied there and graduated from this wonderful monastic college in a remote part of Tibet. And I had the opportunity to talk to uh, one of the top. Uh, teachers there, and I asked him specifically, what do you think is best for the West in terms of transmitting Buddhism mm -hmm. to the West? And his opinion, I don't know how well he really knows Westerners, but he seemed to know what he was talking about, <laughs> and I have faith in him, and his opinion was that um, the teachings of, of Prajnaparamita 
Mahamudra and Dzogchen were most accessible and the best to transmit to the West, and um, along with, of course, the teachings of uh, compassion are important, very important. And uh, so I think that maybe he was cognizant of the fact that there can be certain cultural barriers to fully throwing oneself into this kind of deity yoga worship. That being said, I do still think that in any event, love and devotion is a very important element that that it doesn't have to be left out and really can't be left out in the end. I think you have developed a tremendous love and and respect and gratitude and devotion towards your teacher mm -hmm. who helps you recognize your true nature and uh, and also a tremendous love uh, for emptiness or for your own nature itself. Even though it sounds very strange to say love for emptiness, I'm going to fall in love with space. How does that work? But somehow or other, the uh, beauty and the freedom and the liberation of emptiness is uh, extremely uh, beautiful and enticing, and you can fall completely in love with it. I'm I'm reminded of um we had on the show a, a friend of ours uh, a poet who uh did a 3 year um which I guess ended up being a 4 year retreat um in um I think New Mexico or Colorado and um and you know he 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 would talk about lots of the stuff that was coming up but but and and just sort of mention in passing <clears throat> excuse me all these um uh, uh, visualization practices, mm -hmm. and um, and and you know, in retrospect, my sense was that that with reference to to this subject of discussion, it's like the the visualization practices created a foundation upon which other things could mm. occur mm -hmm. for him. Um, although he never he never explicitly put it that way, mm -hmm. I'm projecting that perhaps onto what he said and how he has described you know richly described a lot of stories about about the challenges that being in a three year retreat offered mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um, but but it seemed to me that 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 um, and it's not necessarily that the that he was doing them right. Although it did sound like he was pretty pretty meticulous about trying to do them right, and I'm and of course some in many cases in life in general, it isn't necessarily how perfect you get at doing a thing. It's it's your persistence that that creates the effect that um, you may seek to um, um, ask from the universe. Yeah. So um, so that so. I'm kind of hearing space for that in what you're saying as no, well. No, definitely. And there's no doubt it's extremely uh, powerful. And I have done those practices. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's uh, you think about how much we uh, create our experience of our world in our imagination. <laughs> so here, instead of the, uh, our ordinary uh, uh, non-sacred imagination of the world, mm -hmm. we're substituting a sacred imagination uh, for, uh, we're imagining, in a sense, a world that is sacred, that is luminous, that is um, filled with wisdom and love, 
Mm-hmm. That's an expression of wisdom and love mm-hmm. that is not separate from ourselves <laughs> or from our teachers who we feel great love and devotion to and our lineage. And so we create an environment in our imagination that helps to uh, really transform the whole way we look at the world. And we also, uh, in some of the practices, completely transform the way that we look at and relate to our body. So the body, which often people have a lot of uh, problems with their body image, (laughs) and often people think their bodies or something's wrong with their bodies or their bodies are a little bit repulsive or something like that. Mm -hmm. Instead, your body becomes transformed into the beautiful, luminous body of a deity. So, you know, these kinds of practices over time can really transform one's outlook radically. In the end, I think even imagination, concept of all sorts, has to go, but as a bridge, as a bridge to another way of looking and a, a way of deconstructing some of the limiting and negative imaginations that, and concepts we have, it's an extraordinarily powerful uh, practice. Thank you. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's an interesting way of uh, framing that, that um, from what I get you saying, you know, the, the contention is that we're imagining our world constantly, <laughs> and uh, these practices allow us to bring something intentional into that process. Yeah, and we're kind of shown um, in a sort of initiation a vision in a certain way of a sacred world. So this is a way to kind of embody it and work with it. The world being sacred, meaning that fundamentally perception is pure and not biased in any way. It's not limited by our likes and dislikes. It just is what it is. So this kind of using you know, imagery and so forth helps us to connect with that kind of thing. I don't know that I want to say too much more about Vajrayana because, again, I don't really feel fully right. qualified. Well, we're at, we're at the conclusion of the first yeah. hour anyway. So. Okay. Yeah, so, so you're off <laughs> so the my hook. break? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I will say, you know, um, mention that uh, we have a friend who's been on the show a couple times, uh, Sam Webster. He lives in the Bay Area, but he's an adept in the uh, Western magical tradition, and mm. but also has had some exposure to Tibetan um, Buddhism and in talking with a, a particular lama that he's worked with, he, you know, he found that there was the compassion aspect and the the working on behalf of others was a missing element in like the modern uh, Thelemic uh, traditions that came from Aleister Crowley, and so he sort mm-hmm. of added that into the practice in order to move the magical, the Western magical process off of the, uh, uh, you know, sort of the reification of the personal ego and into something that's actually for others. That's nice. And then, you know, and by the way, just to say in Vajrayana too, what part of the visualization process is you visualize all beings as deities. Therefore, you have to accord tremendous uh, regard and reverence towards everybody. Perfect. Well, we need to take a short break at the hour. You're listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, and joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we're conversing in the studio with Hal Blacker, founder of Real Dharma, an organization dedicated to helping people find inner freedom through directly recognizing their true nature. Hal has been authorized to teach non-dual wisdom and meditation in both the Advaita Vedanta and Nyingma Dzogchen traditions. 
We'll return to our show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called Luigi Baccarini, Three Quintets, performed by the ensemble Quattro Mosaic with Patrick Cohen on pianoforte. This is the last movement from the uh, quintet number 414, marked Finale, Allegro con poco vivace.
Welcome back to the Mystical Positivist. You are, I am your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we converse in the studio with Hal Blacker, founder of Real Dharma, an organization dedicated to helping people find inner freedom through directly recognizing their true nature. Hal has been authorized to teach non-dual wisdom and meditation in both the Advaita Vedanta and Nyingma Dzogchen traditions. So um, in the first uh, uh, hour, we had a lot of discussion about uh, the Tibetan side of things. We alluded a little bit to uh, uh, your training in Advaita Vedanta, and I wanted to start this hour really helping to deepen our understanding of traditional Advaita Vedanta, and in particular what I'm responding to partly is that in the West, in Northern California in particular, uh, we've certainly seen in the last uh, decade or so uh, what's been termed Neo-Advaita Vedanta, which are spiritual teachers, uh, 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 students who use the language of, you know, of, of Advaita Vedanta, but don't necessarily have the roots in the uh, Indian-based traditions. So I'm wondering if you could uh, you know, start by just helping to draw what distinctions you see between Neo-Advaita Vedanta, traditional Advaita Vedanta, and then, and then we'll get into some more questions about uh, that tradition. Okay, yeah, that's, uh, that's an important topic, actually. The... Advaita Vedanta, you could say that there are actually three types of Advaita, of Advaita or Advaita Vedanta that are being taught in, in uh, the modern world. There's the traditional Advaita Vedanta, which is what I was trained in. That's a teaching that primarily it's a teaching of the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, and the Brahma Sutras. Those are the three main texts. And, and technically, Advaita is non-dual. Advaita means, yeah, uh, Dvaita means two, and A means not, so not two. So not, it's the teaching two. of non-dual Vedanta. Vedanta means, is Vedanta is the part of the Vedas, which are the ancient Indian uh, scriptures, that is at the end. Anta means at the end. So the end of the Vedas contains these teachings called the Upanishads, and those are... Um, like records of uh, teachings by sages to students who are seeking liberation. A lot of the Vedas deals with um, rituals for worldly uh, goods, for having a son, or, or for having uh, good crops, for a positive rebirth, for peace, for rain for the crops, and all that sort of thing. That sort of thing. But the Upanishads exclusively really deal with the search for liberation from samsara, the liberation from the rounds of birth and death, and the, is the way the tradition talks about it. Really, the Upanishads points to one's fundamental unity with the nature of reality and um, a kind of um, oneness with uh, everything. So, so Vedanta as a word basically refers to this, that, that tradition, the Upanishadic uh, teachings. The Upanishadic teachings also it's set forth in the Bhagavad Gita and another. Yep. Those are the main. And then there's many, many uh, other texts that have been written by uh, teachers through the years that help to explain those teachings. So that's the teaching of Advaita Vedanta, and primarily it's been explicated. It was explicated in the 8th century by the great teacher Adi Shankara. 
And uh, it all comes down from him. He was the first person to write commentaries on the Upanishads and on the Bhagavad Gita. And uh, really the teachings all come down from him, uh, the traditional Advaita Vedanta. What happened was with uh, Western colonialization, um, the India was exposed to Western thought. And uh, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, some Indians tried to incorporate some Western thought into their Vedantic understanding. So we have primarily the most famous person is Swami Vivekananda, mm. who addressed the World Parliament of Religions in Chicago in the 1880s, I believe it was, or 1890s, and uh, he was a disciple of the great Saint Ramakrishna, Paramahamsa. In any case, there's a whole tradition uh, that sprung from him, from them that uh, is a little bit different than the traditional Vedanta in that they try to incorporate some Western psychology mm-hmm. and some other kinds of things in there. We call that, scholars call that Neo-Vedanta. Oh, that's interesting. So yeah. that, that's where they, they uh, uh, Vedanta without the Kali, is that the... Uh... What's that? Without the Kali, since uh, uh, Ramakrishna was a devotee of Kali, and and, uh, Vivekananda kind of downplayed that as he brought the teaching to the West. You could say that, but I think what happened mainly was that what the main distinction is that um, I don't want to get too technical, but the main distinction is basically even in Neo Vedanta, uh, the emphasis tends to be on. Uh, having an experience or having experience Mm. rather than through understanding. And also this whole idea that you hear about the four yogas, bhakti yoga, jnana yoga, the yoga of devotion, bhakti, the yoga of knowledge, jnana, the yoga of karma, of of good action, and the raja yoga, the yoga of meditation, these four approaches to uh, in Hinduism. That's not a traditional thing. That came out of uh, Neo-Vedanta, Swami Vivekananda and his followers, and it kind of was influenced by this Western psychological ideas. There's different types of people, so there's different types of paths for different types of people, so on and so forth. So oh, I that's, don't. That's really interesting. Yeah. I didn't realize that the that that division was uh, the Neo-Vedanta uh, as you're describing. Yeah, and so basically, though, I'm not saying that there aren't amazing teachers in that tradition who do understand the traditional Vedanta. Mm-hmm. There are some incredible teachers even today in the Vedanta Society and the Ramakrishna mm-hmm. Mission who have a profound understanding, I think, of traditional Advaita Vedanta, mm-hmm. but the teaching is a little bit mixed with other things. There was a bit of an emphasis. They kind of made it appeal to Western scientifically oriented people in that you're supposed to study the scriptures, but then you have to go into the laboratory of meditation Mm -hmm. to have the experience that the scriptures talk about. This is not a Vedantic teaching at all. And I'll try to clarify that a little Mm -hmm. bit more in a a moment. This is not a traditional Vedantic teaching. This is a neo-Vedantic teaching. Now we have, of course, something that's even a little bit more, in fact, much more removed, which is in the West is called, some people are calling Neo-Advaita. Most of them wouldn't even necessarily use the word Vedanta because they don't really feel any allegiance to the tradition mm-hmm. or the scriptures, per se. And that's a kind of a, 
Um, Airsats, uh, Don Dualism, <laughs> I would say. Again, I think there are well-meaning people, and there are probably people who have some genuine understanding, realization, who are even, I think, teaching that tradition. But it is, uh, I think, the way it's been presented in the West is relatively, is somewhat confused and confusing and unclear compared to the depth and clarity that you will find in the original mm -hmm. uh, tradition that has been being, you know, uh, worked on for thousands of years, you know? Yeah, I mean, my, my exposure to uh, uh, people who I put in that tradition, some of whom even had uh, exposure to Indian teachers, but there's a, I guess the feel I have is it, it relies heavily on uh use of language uh and it 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 it's almost like a one trick pony i mean every every uh answer to every question is uh 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 goes back to your consciousness and mm. in one sense you could argue well yes it is but when that becomes a uh language game it's it becomes a idea that sort of uh, mediates between one's experience of reality as it is and you know one's experience you know there you've got you've got this yeah. conceptual framework in there uh that's claiming non that it's non-conceptual right i think that sometimes what happens is that everything is flattened into one uh order of reality which is this so-called like absolute order of reality everything therefore is just pure consciousness and nothing else actually has any existence at all now that's not really uh the teaching of traditional advaita vedanta which recognizes that there is a what that's called the via viharika or the transactional level of reality which is the world of people and things and work and responsibilities and duties and all that kind of thing that has not ultimate existence but it does have some existence and it has to be reckoned with so and then there is the order of the absolute reality uh, so what happens often in Neo-Advaita, I think, is that these orders of reality are confused so that any question that comes up, uh, like an ethical problem, is just sort of ad uh, advited or non-dueled away mm -hmm. so that one doesn't have to actually uh, deal with it on its own terms or on its own level. Well, so the, that would seem to imply that um, the original uh, Advaita Vedanta tradition has ethical teachings is that or or a foundation by which an ethical understanding would arise is that accurate yeah definitely there's definitely ethical teachings and you'll find it quite a bit set out in the bhagavad-gita um mm, okay and uh there's a whole list of of kinds of ethical guidelines that okay. uh, are are clearly set out is that in some of the subs not so much in the upanishads but in the sub i've read some upanishads but not not the whole body. To some degree in the Upanishads, but they mainly deal, the Upanishads primarily deal with the recognition of, the, uh, of, of oneself as being the absolute one with Brahman. Atman, which is the self, is the same as Brahman, which is limitless. Right, right. Being so, conscious. But it is in the, in the Vedic tradition. Uh, uh. You see, um, in the whole tradition, there's different levels of... Uh, of uh, things that are dealt with, and one is called Dharma, mm -hmm. 
So Dharma is a word that has many different meanings. And in Buddhism, primarily Dharma just means the teaching. Mm-hmm. But in, uh, in Vedanta, Dharma primarily talks about the laws or rules that sort of govern the, the intrinsic laws that govern uh, this transactional reality, mm-hmm. what one's duties are and, uh, and um, karma and that sort of thing. You know, what the consequences of doing dharmic, which are uh, actions in accordance with the law, or adharmic actions, mm-hmm. what those consequences are. That's deal- all dealt with under the rubric of what's called dharma. I hadn't really thought about this before, but it just kind of flashed on me that the that rather than looking at that as a set of rules or moralities that are being imposed, there's an implication that's not unlike the Taoist implication that you know if you're one with the Tao, you're you're acting in accordance to reality, and if you're out of sync are acting out of sync with the Tao, then there are consequences. Exactly. And Dharma is, you know, the root is, is I think, Dharma, it, it means it, it, that which holds things together. Hmm. So it's kind of like the sort of intrinsic structure of this uh, relative or transactional reality. And so my my sense of that, from that material, is that there's a teaching, the ethical teaching is that you're you're obliged to act in accordance to what your duty is or your dharma is, and you're counseled not to att- be attached to the results of the action. That's true. That's karma yoga, basically. Uh, that's what karma yoga is called. Uh, is uh, now I just said before we don't have these different yogas, but car- there is there are two primary. Uh, um, divisions in Advaita Vedanta. One is karma yoga, which is how you deal with action in the world, and the other is jnana yoga, which is your understanding of your identity with yeah. limitless being and consciousness. So going back then to the traditional uh, Advaita Vedanta that you studied, yeah. um, uh, can you flesh that out a little bit more in terms of uh, what what the focus of the the practice and the tradition was that you know because I think in the first hour you you very clearly described that it it provided or, or it was part of the soup of things that provided for you uh, foundational insight. So the amazing thing about Advaita Vedanta, if you understand really the way it works, its methodology is that the teachings are said to be a means of knowledge. They call it. A Shabda Pramana, I don't want to use too much Sanskrit, but Shabda means sound or words, Mm. and Pramana means a means of knowledge. So for everything that is known, there is a means of knowledge. To know uh, a visual object, the eyes and the sense of sight is the means of knowledge. That's the only way you can know a visual object or see a visual object is through the eyes and the sense of sight. Similarly for sounds, the means of knowledge are functioning ears. Um, A pramana, uh, a shabda pramana means that the way to know your true nature as being the same as the true nature of all of the totality is through the teachings of through hearing the words of the teachings. <laughs> so this is a rather unusual concept that it might be a little hard to wrap your head around. You kind of have to do it. Use 
the pramana. You have to use it, use the methodology to see how it works. And how does one use the methodology is that one exposes oneself to the teachings by someone who's qualified to teach in a methodical way and primarily through listening, through hearing. You hear the teachings, those teachings, through hearing them, direct your mind in such a way as to remove ignorance and help you to see your your true nature. Why, how is it that just the use of words can help you to see your true nature? Because your true nature is already present. It's here. It's not far away. It's not anything distant. You don't have to go anywhere. It's right here. All that needs to be removed is the ignorance. The words of the teachings don't really give knowledge in the sense of giving anything that's not already here. Rather, they remove kind of the obscurations. Yeah, the, they remove the misunderstanding yeah. that is obscuring the knowledge. So, so I've heard. Uh, and, is this clear at all? Yeah, you know okay. that that, that okay. it's clear uh, to uh, to the you know up to the point of what you've said. Uh, okay. I, one qualification, I guess, I wanted to ask here is that I've I in some of the uh, descendants of, of Nasargadatta Maharaj, I've seen reference to mantra uh, mm. as part of that, or initiation in a mantra or something. So is there some element of sound involved in uh, mantra uh, work that reminds one again of the uh, core teachings? That's a little bit of a different thing. I was initiated into that uh, practice or into that mantra because my teacher is in the same lineage as Nizagadatta, and um, so I'm very familiar with that. Uh, the really the mantra is used for meditation, and what the teacher, what my teacher told me, Ranjit Maharaj, was that meditation won't really give you liberation, won't give you the knowledge that, of, that liberates you. Meditation is to help to make the mind more subtle, to make the mind more pliable. To, make, to help to purify, one could say, the mind. And so all sorts of meditation practices can be used, the use of mantra, japa, the repetition of sacred words, and so forth. These are used to both to, to calm and clarify the mind, to make it more receptive to hearing the teachings. Uh, it's said that in order to really, for the teachings to really work, for the pramana to work, the means of knowledge to work, and for them to take root in you, you have to be prepared. Mm. Um, and part of the preparation is a certain kind of uh, mental uh, pur purity or purification that comes through um, ethical conduct. Because if you're unethical, you're going to be too agitated to really be able to hear the teachings. You're going to be thinking about how do I get out of the trouble I'm in? <laughs> how do I get this thing over on somebody else? How do I get what I want and make sure the other guy doesn't get it? Whatever, you're going to be uh, preoccupied. You're not going to have an open, clear mind that can uh, hear, really hear the teachings. And then another part of it is actually just mental discipline of learning how to uh, concentrate. Okay and follow an argument, so to speak, follow a teaching. Thank you. Um, so I want to uh, turn attention to uh, the topic of compassion and compassion in um, 
in this Advaita Vedanta tradition. I mean, I don't know much about, um, I'm realizing as you're speaking that I don't know nearly as much about the Advaita Vedanta tradition, uh, even an overview, as I thought I um, might have had some uh, very generalized uh, familiarity. So that, that's, that's useful for me. But, but, I'm, but I'm wondering about how compassion um, figures in this, in this tradition. Um, I'm already um, struck by the by the by the focus on inquiry, mm-hmm. and um, and I'm wondering how inquiry or other or other techni- techniques would be used to to elicit, to invite, um, and to support um, the development of compassion, uh, because it seems to me that that's one of the one of the features of, of Buddhism that has that has been most deeply appreciated, most widely appreciated, mm-hmm. perhaps. And after all, they both grew up in the same um, homeland, as it were. So, what's what's the relationship of compassion to the Advaita Vedanta tradition? Well, you know, the Buddhism is really focused a lot and has a lot of wonderful practices for developing compassion. And often, I think in Advaita Vedanta, that's not as much emphasized. Mm-hmm. Part of it is because, again, at the point where you're really able to make use of Advaita Vedanta, you're supposed to have a certain qualifications of, of, of being ethical and therefore presumably have developed a certain care and concern for others. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely not absent, uh, the cultivation of compassion from mm-hmm. Advaita Vedanta. For example, one of the most famous uh, practices used in both the Theravadan Buddhist tradition, as well as in Mahayana Buddhist tradition, is what's called the four immeasurables, where you cultivate um, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity towards all beings, and you do that methodically. Well, those uh, that was first set out in the, I think, in the Brihadaranyaka uh, Upanishad. Ah. It seems like Buddha may have adapted that or adopted mm. that from the uh, Upanishad because I think it preceded Buddhism mm-hmm. and it set out quite clearly. So there's definitely those kinds of practices there. Then, of course, the other dimension to look at is that um, that um, when one recognizes one's unity with everyone and everything compassion really would be expected to be a natural mm-hmm. uh, result of that sure and um really this word compassion karuna it's really used a lot in vedanta in the chant that we do to the lineage we talk about them as being the source of all compassion hmm. um my teacher's teacher, Swami Dayananda, his name, Dayananda, means daya, is to give, but it also means compassion. Hmm. So, I mean, this is a very highly uh, valued um, thing in Advaita Vedanta. Got it. So, um, that might be one of the areas where the where the new Advaita um, understanding has perhaps lost some of uh, the traditional... Um, Understanding is that a, a, a possibly the case? 
Uh, maybe, yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, we, again, I'm not super expert on uh, right. neo well, diet, but from what I've heard of it, they don't seem to emphasize that. Very well, well, let me also add one one area of emphasis that I think you've already distinguished, and that's it's not uncommon for um, people who are drawn to that to get it in a weekend or something like that to go to a retreat, and uh, because they have this conceptual formulation, it's like I've gotten it. Mm. Whereas you're describing a very different process where not only, even when you come to the teaching, you are, there's already a preparation that's uh, assumed, right? It's, it's assumed, and if you don't have it, then you sh- need to be getting it while you're also studying the more absolute oh. teachings. And how does that work for, for Western uh, students, then? Well, we do it through um, uh, through practices to some degree like meditation mm-hmm. through uh, uh, studying and understanding the value of values of these positive values mm. and cult and why they need to be cultivated yeah. and um, in the relationship certain mental training occurs through uh, just being present to hear the teaching. So, for example, listening is an art. So to learn to really be able to listen and follow what someone is saying and really listen to it and let it in, that takes a certain kind of both uh, samadhi or concentration, Mm -hmm. awareness, attention, respect, regard, all sorts of qualities like that have to be cultivated, otherwise you're not going to follow your teacher. I, When I first started to study with my Advaita Vedanta teacher, I'd say at best I got 50% of what she was saying. Over time now, without much effort, it seems I can pretty much follow almost everything. Every, every once mm-hmm. in a while I'll space out, yes, but mm-hmm. mostly I am there with her the whole time. But I remember the first year, two or three even, Hmm. Uh, yeah, I would be out. I would be gone fifty percent of the time thinking about work or something okay. else. Yeah, that, 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 that's that's helpful then, because I, I I certainly have experience in in uh, uh, my own work with a teacher where if my teacher was talking, you know, in a study group or something, or for you know, or, or with a group discussion with people for an extended period of time, that. Uh, yeah, there, I could see being tired, spacing out, and things right. like that. My my resilience or my ability to be simply sim- simply present to the inflow uh, uh, was something that took time to develop or to cultivate. Exactly. So that 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 happens, and basically, you know, there's no saying. I mean, basically, someone may pick up on this very quickly, and other people it can take it can take a, it can take a long time. And um, but at a certain point. The, what's supposed to happen is that the vision will, is unfolded in such a way that you see it. You actually see it directly in front of you, and you know it to be true. When you say you see it, is that uh, metaphoric language in the sense like there there's a clarity or a yeah. understanding? It's it's not a visual form or a uh, yeah. or a conceptual articulation. It, no, it's, it's kind of a knowing. It's a knowing that occurs, and and it's a it's a it's a clarity and a knowing, and they call it a um, a non-dual uh, mental event, <laughs> which sounds really? funny because a mental events you say right. are always dual, but right. here there's a not, uh, something that happens where the mind in a certain way turns in upon its own source and becomes a mirror and reflects 
the source of consciousness that is consciousness itself and recognizes that it is completely dependent upon something else. It has no independent self-existence. When that is really clearly seen and known, then one knows that who one really is, is this consciousness and the mind is not me. It's so, not, the mind is not me. So, that, so then the act of listening is actually a cultivation in, in, in um, removing the obstacles to that, to that realization. Exactly. And then when that actually happens, then there is supposed to be a, a, a precisely a, a particular moment in which one recognizes. That's why in some ways coming around full circle, this is a little like pointing out. It mm. is a, supposed to be a specific recognition that, is, that occurs. It's not an experience. As people who go and have these experiences when they go to a weekend Neo-Advaita or mm. Shaktipat yoga thing or whatever they it, it is, people love these experiences or they take drugs or something, so they have mystical experiences. There's nothing wrong with that, but this is not that this mm -hmm. is a recognition because once it's known it's known forever it can't be unknown well, well let me but let me uh, go back to what you said previously uh, is it in the same category as a knowing that then one one has this uh knowing that one still has to stabilize that knowing or, or yeah that's true in other words there could yeah and we talk about a thing called uh, in Advaita Vedanta we talk about a thing it's called nishta which means to be firmly established okay. in this knowing but the knowing sometimes one can have the feeling as if one doesn't know if uh, one gets very emotionally upset they call it viparita bhavana the mood of delusion even though one still knows I know it sounds funny, but but really, one you once you calm down a little bit from whatever got you upset, you come back home. It's not like you ever left. It's not like you lost the knowledge. You know what I mean? You got distracted temporarily, but the knowledge is still there. You know who you are once you know. Mm. That's a, 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 a that corresponds to stuff that I've experienced. In my practice, I really, I really like it. And, and the other thing I'm, I'm getting out of this conversation, which I really appreciate, is, is, this, is this way in which hearing and listening are, um, are um, tools to use to, um, to develop this, um, these various levels of clarity, I guess. And uh, I mean, it's important to me because you know, in our, in uh, you know, the teaching that Stuart and I were exposed to it, and that we, you know, um, uh, practice and teach ourselves, this aspect of being able to hear is is stressed and um, and highly uh, elaborated. Exactly. Now, the thing about it, though, to also to understand is, there's they say there's three parts for the knowledge to really take mm -hmm. root. One is the first thing, and probably in some ways the most important, is the what they call shravana, which is listening, hearing, mm -hmm. because the vision becomes unfolded, and as you're able to more focus, concentrate, and really follow it along the uh, methodologies that are used to help guide the mind to see, um, then the vision becomes apparent to you. Mm -hmm. But then still, because the vision tends to be so counter to the way you have lived all your life, doubts may arise. So mm -hmm. you need to then, that's called manana, you need to 
chew on it and let the doubts arise. Doubts are encouraged. In fact, they're mm -hmm. even stimulated. In fact, we even study things that are designed to raise doubt mm -hmm. so that doubt will, will be dealt with and then you deal with it. You ask t your teacher uh, to clarify and you think about it yourself. You ask your teacher. Mm -hmm. And so th there's a period in which manana, that's called, the thinking about and the doubt has to be clarified. Once finally that's completely resolved, then there's what's called um, nididhyasana, which is a kind of a, a, an ongoing contemplation where you bring yourself home to this knowledge that you have and sit mm. with it mm. and assimilate it and assimilate it. Interesting. Thank you. Well, we're, we're starting to get to the end of our time, so I wanted to shift back to uh, your story in the sense of... Um, you know, you you'd said that at right now you're um you you have been uh offering teachings right now you're on a hiatus from that um so I'm just interested in you know how is your work unfolding now uh you know what what do you see uh, on the near term horizon and if you know people are interested in uh engaging with you uh, how do they find out more about your work well, um, right now I'm not publicly teaching any classes. If people want to contact me and talk to me, they, uh, they're welcome to do so. Uh, right now, you know, having said all of this, <laughs> I used to say that one of my teachers was a little like, you know, uh, you, put a, you put a quarter, you ask the right question, you put a quarter in the machine, and this amazing teaching comes out. Sometimes I feel like if you ask me, I can just talk. I could talk like this with uh, tremendous uh, vigor and excitement for hours, right? But my experience has been that uh, I'm not so sure that this methodology works so well for most Westerners. I'm, I mean, I do believe the, w the methodology works, but are there people who are willing to expose themselves to this kind of process over a uh, in a methodical way over a long enough period of time here in the West for it to actually happen. I mean, it's it's not. There's no reason why it has to be difficult because what's being pointed to is something that is who you are. It's already present. But you know, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says um, only one out of a thousand people are interested in this kind of thing, or one out of thousands is yeah. interested. And out of them, only one out of thousands sticks with it long enough to actually get it. And uh, so I'm, I'm a little bit thinking about contemplating, is there uh, some other way to communicate this that um, might be more accessible? On the other hand, I'm a very traditional... As you can tell when you hear me speak, I speak really from the tradition, and yeah. uh, so I don't know. I don't feel comfortable uh, altering the tradition per se. So I'm not. Well, that's why I'm a little unclear where I'm going uh, right now. Myself. I mean, it's an interesting question because I mean, like this podcast is, uh, as we were talking at the break, is partly intended to introduce and and actually it's pitched at a. Uh, not a, I wouldn't call it an elementary level. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's actually a lot of the people who are going to get the most out of listening to this podcast. I, I'm imagining, at least, are fairly sophisticated yeah. to some degree. Long-term, mm -hmm. long-term practitioners. So the yeah. question is, long-term practitioners are out there. Yeah. I just don't know that there's a lot. 
you know, right. and, and I don't know that they're ever, and, and like as Krishna said, and this is something that the Gurdjieff tradition certainly has, which is uh, kind of the inspiration for our own tradition, you know, that not everyone is interested in or necessarily even required to uh, engage in this kind of long-term practice. Those people are there. Interesting question is may, maybe uh, the market's saturated in a sense, um, <laughs> Maybe so, and you know there are some really good teachers in the in this area in the Bay Area. So I don't think there's a lack of good teachers. There may be a lack of really good students, possibly, but I don't think there's a lack of good teachers. I hate to say, but um, I mean I think that's well, a good thing. But uh, but the other thing is, what is it that drives someone that gives them this kind of intense hunger? to understand, you know, so that they just can't rest. I mean, it's a very difficult situation to have that kind of what's called mamukshitram, this intense desire to really know, to understand. Um, when someone has that, it's uh, it's a difficult situation to be in. You can't rest. Yeah. You feel uh, angst and anxiety. You feel unhappy until you resolve this issue. Now, most people don't have it, and they don't need to have it. There's no need that they have to have it necessarily. Right, and, and right. you know, per the conversation we were having a couple of weeks ago, it doesn't make us special if we have it. It's just that it's something that... Yeah, uh, it's just a quality we happen to be manifesting. Right. I don't know if it's genetic or, or <laughs> karmic or what it is, but some people have that right. intense desire and some people don't, so... Yeah, and, okay. and and my my I've also experienced that some people have it for certain periods of time, and they have to get <laughs> filled up in a way, and then they go off into life and then come back. I mean that that that, that happens yeah. too. And I have you know, there's I think for the people who have that hunger and also crave access to a uh, traditional, uh, you know, a real tradition like like uh, uh, what you're offering. I think it's in, to me it's interesting because for someone who is interested, it maybe has even been taken by some of the language of the uh, you know kind of neo uh, Advaita uh, uh, people who have an influence. Going deeper and actually understanding that there's a tradition there and a methodology that's been proved out over time is uh, important. Yeah. So your website is. RealDharma.org. And that's still active, right? That's still there. and also I, I just went there today. All right. <laughs> You'll also see references to my teacher. She's still teaching. Mm -hmm. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Does she ever uh, come to the Bay Area? Is she uh, local or is she uh, international? <clears throat> Excuse me for one minute. Yeah. We have a water moment. She uh, she lives in the uh, in Northern California and sometimes is in Berkeley. Okay. So yeah. Well, great. Well, we really appreciate the uh, uh, conversation. This has been interesting. We've covered a lot of interesting ground. Yeah, it's been it's been uh, as, as often happens on this show. I get stuff that I wasn't expecting to get personally, and to me. It invites me to think that other people are getting things, too. Great. I've really enjoyed talking to you guys. Excellent. Thank you so Thank much. You. All right. You've been listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we've been speaking in the studio with Hal Blacker, founder of Real Dharma, an organization dedicated to helping people find inner freedom through directly recognizing their true nature. 
Hal has been authorized to teach non-dual wisdom and meditation in both the Advaita Vedanta and Nyingma Dzogchen traditions. Next week's Mystical Positivist show will feature a conversation with Tibetan Buddhist nun Ani Samten Palmo, a monastic at the Lotus Mountain Gampa, and a student of Lama Vena, Yeshe Ketup, a teacher of the direct mind perception meditation and a lineage holder of several Tibetan Buddhist traditions. Ani offers one-on-one teachings and sessions with smaller groups. Her teachings focus primarily on mind training and how we create our own reality in combination with open-heartedness, compassion, and connecting with other beings. This includes some emphasis on the somatic experience of trauma and emotions to help in the process of letting go and release. Such an approach benefits our ability to open up and stay in the moment, to stay in the heart. A native of Luzerne, Switzerland, Annie studied at Life University in Marietta, Georgia, and currently lives in Guerneville, California. Tune in for that show on Saturday, January 19th from 4 to 6 p.m. Coming up on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, follow your dread to the mystical heart with Taiyu Meditation Center staff. That's monthly on the first Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m., the next meeting February 6th, 2019. That's at Many Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Story has it that in the very bottom fissure of hell, the deepest recess glowing with unquenchable fires, a simple drain cover lies unnoticed. Find and remove the cover, descend through the narrow drain, and emerge into the highest, most radiant realm of heaven. If this metaphor resonates with something in you, our practice group work that focuses on follow your dread may resonate still more deeply. No one can be divorced from or denied access to the mystical heart, but to open and then live within the mystical heart of the world and ourselves is a cost. We don't get there by denying, sweeping under the rug, or putting aside the aspects that we dislike of who we've been. The mystical heart receives the light and the dark without judgment. So in our group and individual practice, we seek to cultivate a heart-mind that holds all contents of consciousness simultaneously with discernment and without discrimination. Following your dread is an undertaking best accomplished in the company of fellow travelers and with guidance from others who have gone before. Join us. Um, first Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. at Many Rivers in downtown Sebastopol to learn more about the realistic path to the mystical heart. And then coming up on Thursdays at Many Rivers in Sebastopol, Angels and Angelic Messages for the New Year 2019. That's with Trina Vega, a Native American intuitive healer, Thursday, January 17th at 7.30 p.m. at Many Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Trina Vega, also known by her native Pomo name, Lasha Kalei, meaning White Moon, will offer angel messages for 2019 and discuss the interpretation and conduction of angel influences and energies for the new year. Trina has experienced angels and visions of angels throughout her life and receives daily messages from them. Regarding angels, Trina writes, They are with everyone, and the more you know about angels, the more you will hear and see their messages. Join us for this opportunity. Trina Vega is a Native American healer who practices a diverse menu of healings, from Native Grandmother Ocean to healing with the angels. She is an intuitive reader and has practiced and offered readings for 30-plus years. She is the youthful and energetic grandmother to 18 grandchildren. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday. We leave you with music from a CD called Luigi Boccarini, Three Quintets, performed by the ensemble Quattro Mosaic with 
Patrick Cohen on pianoforte. This is the second movement from the catalog um, quintet number 418, marked Presto. Enjoy. Mm-hmm. 